Our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Good to be with you. Um, We said this at the beginning of the service, but if you're new, we're really glad you're here, whether it's online or in person. If you're online, you can shoot us an email, info at northcrosschurch.com. If you're in person, there's a welcome table out there where you can sign up um, for our newsletter and to know more about North Cross. Um, Also, there's mugs, I think, still. If you want to grab one, uh, you're welcome to do that. And if you're here again, we're really glad that you're with us and that you've chosen to worship and be with this family and the community. Well, Um, As we just heard read, we are finally working our way back to our year-long sermon series on the letter to Ephesians. And maybe because you just heard what was read, you realized why I waited a bit to get back to the letter to the Ephesians, given all the things we're going through. But I do believe that the book of Ephesians is God's I Have a Dream speech. It's God's vision for the church, for the community that the church is and the church is becoming. One day, someday... This means despite our best and worst efforts, our loudest and softest opinions, the church is meant to look and to sound and to smell like Jesus, a fragrant offering, a living sacrifice, a miracle in the form of the powerless, the vulnerable, and the unimportant. Hence our sermon series title, Jesus and His Church, Belonging to an Ordinary-Looking Miracle. But before I keep quoting verse 2 more and more uh, of our passage and get further and further ahead of ourselves, let's take a moment to pause and to pray uh, for our time together in God's words this morning. Let's pray. Father, um, I do pray that you would settle our hearts and settle our minds. Um, We've experienced a lot (laughs) this morning. Uh, New membership, baptism, singing, 
Um, Lord, I just pray that you would meet us in your word again. There's so much here. It's almost overwhelming. But I pray that you'd help sift and sort your words, that you'd settle them into our hearts in just the right places in our lives. And would you teach us by them? Not only what to do, but most importantly, who you are and your care for us and your affection in Christ. And I pray that that would come through and that we would see you, Jesus, high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So uh, when I was a teenager, maybe somewhere in the 11 and 12-year-old range, uh, I started looking, like most people that age, outside of my family for the people I wanted to be like. Uh, it was the early 1990s, uh, dates me a little bit, but I, so I really didn't actually have to look very long or very far to find someone I wanted to be like. The Chicago Bulls had just won the NBA championship, thanks to Michael Jordan. He had a, a scoring average of 31 points per game during the regular season. He made an epic last-minute playoff buzzer beater over the Cleveland Cavaliers. And then he continued his amazing scoring and ball handling skills in the Bulls NBA final against the LA Lakers. I was just hooked. I can remember being in my driveway with my basketball, driving the lane, switching hands midair to make a layup with my tongue out in concentration, just like MJ, Michael Jordan. I wanted to be just like Mike. And then at the height of my internal frenzy, there was that famous Gatorade commercial. I don't know if you remember this. It's pretty much, I'd already been living it out. There were these alternating scenes in this commercial of Michael Jordan's NBA shot-making glory, and then little kids like me imitating Jordan's signature basketball moves. And it was all set to this catchy song. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move. It's the 90s. I dream I groove like Mike, if I could be like Mike. Like Mike, if I could be like Mike. Like Mike, I just want to be like Mike. And finally, the commercial's glory ended shamelessly with a fade to black background in all caps, white letters that said, be like Mike, drink Gatorade. Yeah. Okay. And yes, I did sh- drink my fair share of Gatorade, uh, especially well into young adulthood. Uh, but the point is, the Gatorade had seen a sneaky truth that's hard for us to see sometimes. As much as we'd like to be completely original, we are born followers. We have all have heroes, don't we? Even adults. I mean, why is the Marvel movie franchise so big? Or why do all of us follow internet influencers in some way, shape, or form? We're all worshipers, aren't we? We have pop stars. We have TV shows called American Idol. We thought about that for a while. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is not, are you following something or someone? We need to actually ask, who are you following and why? Who are you following and why? Because we're all doing it. What's so compelling about him or her? What's so admirable? What's so delightful or fascinating? How are we identifying with him or her? 
right? What feels unobtainable about that person? But at the same time, what also feels like we're almost there, like we could be that person? And we need to ask these kind of questions because who we want to be like, who we are imitating is so very important for our lives. For instance, time has revealed that while I can still marvel at Michael Jordan's basketball heroics, I really just can't get behind what seemed to be going on inside during that Bulls run to the championship. I want to be careful not to villainize Jordan, but his very public glowing comments about himself and thankless, envious comments about other players he played against makes me not want to have an ego like Mike. I don't want to think of myself like Mike. And that's really the problem, isn't it? The more we get to know any human being, their speech, their actions, their thought life, that can't hold the weight of our expectations, can it? Following people, blindly adoring or imitating anyone, will lead to disappointment and sometimes even to self-destruction. But I can imagine the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, He's waving, he's furiously waving his hands in the back. And he's saying, yeah, oh, yep, it looks like he would beg to differ. Apostle Paul would beg to differ. What would he say? He wants to make one seemingly small but highly significant qualification. Yes, you will be disappointed and emptied out and possibly significantly wounded, adoring or imitating anyone. Anyone except Jesus of Nazareth. Only God become man, was tempted and tried, but found sinless. And what's more, found full of wonder, glory, to give a matchless identity and perfect guidance. And what is that identity? And what are those marching orders that Jesus gives for us? Verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Or, if I were to put it in a commercial jingle, like Christ. I want to be like Christ. <laughs> Maybe that's just what you'll take away from the sermon. But how do, you, how do we be like Christ, right? How do we become like Christ as we grow up spiritually? Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 17, picture it for us. We walk. We take one step after another. As God's delighted in kids... We walk in love, we walk in light, and we walk in wisdom. As God's delighted in kids, we walk in love, and we walk in light, and we walk in wisdom. And that's the substance of our outline this morning that's going to be projected behind me, and also that is in your e-bulletin. First, verses 1 through 7 tell us to walk in love, not lust. Second, verses 8 through 14 tell us to walk in light, not darkness. And then third, and finally, verses 15 through 17 Tell us to walk in wisdom, not foolishness. And so we're going to begin with verses 1 through 17, or 1 through 7, not 17, and what it, begins, what it means to walk in love and not lust. Verse 2 gets pretty specific, doesn't it? We are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And this one verse is so packed with meaning, isn't it? It's the very heart and heartbeat of Christianity's central message, the gospel. 
Christ gave himself up to die on a cross for me. In his life, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the demands of what it means to be an actually good person for us. And in his death, Jesus completely exhausted the judgment that we deep down know we deserve. And so Jesus did not give himself up for me because I was good or because I was good to him. As the early church father Chrysostom writes, you spare your friends, he, Jesus, spared his enemies. (laughs) You spare your friends, he spared his enemies. And so, (laughs) what do we do with Jesus' life and death? What do they teach us about love? What is love, according to Jesus? Love is self-sacrifice. Not always, or even usually, is it physical sacrifice, like dying for somebody else. But dying to self is what love is. You die to self. You die to your, to your sense of control. I die to my reputation. I die to my time. I die to my way. I die to my preferences. And Jesus promises a surprising and worth it resurrection on the other side of each little or big death that we, that we endure. But we can like so quickly confuse intimacy and connection and the affirmation that love gives with its counterfeit, lust. Lust in the short term can feel like love, but it's just not the same thing. It's like how salt water seems like fresh water until you start drinking it. (laughs) And once you start drinking it, you just get more thirsty and you get more sick. True love is characterized by self-sacrifice. False love or lust is characterized by self-indulgence. And if self-indulgence feels kind of confusing as a word, like all of a sudden sin is like dark chocolate or, you know, like sheets with a high thread count, (laughs) what I want to say instead is think of lust as self-centered, Versus other-centered. Verses 3 and 4 clarify what self-centered or self-indulgent actually means. Lust is ungrateful. Lust is ungrateful. Lust covets. It's love twisted to possess, to take and to hoard out of a fear of scarcity. You're thinking to yourself, what if there's none left for me? I better take while the taking's good. Or you're thinking, maybe i got to make this a little bit more personally convenient for me. I want it my way on my timeline. Thank you very much. And so lust is often centered on sex. Sex stripped of relationships. That precious gift of God used to get physical intimacy on its own. Without the promise till death do us part, emotional, financial, social, and spiritual intimacy. Let me be clear. I really want to be clear here. It's really important. Contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not equate sex with sin. Okay, sex is not sin. In fact, the Bible is pro-sex. Pro-sex. Imagine the pom-poms and the pep rally. This Bible is for sex. Just read the Song of Songs. It's so much for sex, the Bible is so much for sex, that God cares for us to use this good gift 
with care for good for other people. And really, verses 3 through 7 describe how lust, if unchecked, progresses to the bad, right? Often it begins with uncareful speech about, say, sex, verses 3 through 4, and also unhealthy relationships where sex is abused, verse 7, and ultimately affecting our personal relationship with God, verses 5 and 6. But please know, like if you're looking at verse 5 in particular, it's not saying that anyone in this room or on this stage who has struggled with sexual immorality is kicked out of relationship with God. I want to be really clear here. It's not saying that. It's not saying if you've ever struggled with sexual immorality, you're out. It's not saying that. Because everyone in this room would be disqualified. Can we just be honest about that for a second? Rather, verse 5 is a warning to check our hearts. It's, a, it's asking good questions. It's asking us if we care about what God cares about. Are we trusting with our bodies what Jesus has promised? That self-sacrifice, not self-centered indulgence, leads to eternal inheritance. That self-sacrifice leads to an intimacy and a connection that is far, far beyond what we can even imagine. And that's how we put off lust and we put on love, by the way. We look to Jesus' life and death as a model, an example, and as a motivation, the reason and energy that we can go and love. I really appreciate how uh, Brian Chapel zeroes in on our love as motivation. He tells a story about how he was on his way to college for the first time. His dad was driving him. But he had, this college was five hours away, but he had never actually visited the college that he was going to. And in fact, he had never visited the town where the college was. And so Brian slowly but surely gets more and more quiet in the conversation. And he starts to kind of lock up and get more and more frightened. And his dad, who's kind of driving, recognizes this. And he pulls over to the side of the road and he cuts the engine off. And he turns to Brian. And he says this. I don't know if things will go well or poorly for you. I don't know if you'll succeed or fail. But I want you to always remember you're my son. And nothing will ever change that. No matter what happens, I will love you, and there's a place for you in my home. You're my son. Nothing will ever change that. No matter what happens, I will love you, and there's a place for you in my home. And that is exactly what Brian needed most in order to face his fears about going to college. It's also what we need most, isn't it? To face our fears about missing out. If you're single, missing out on sex. Or just getting what's ours, what we think we deserve in this life. The truth is that the love of the cross, the love that's behind the cross, is what we actually need in order to say no. We, have, we need Jesus to do what feels like to not do what feels like what we need. To, to resist what we feel like we need most of all. Why is that? Why do we resist? 
because Jesus has asked me to. That's it. He's asked me to, and that's enough. We can trust that the one asking is good for it. I am his, he is mine, and he's my home forever. But we don't just walk in love because the one who is love shows us the way. We also walk in the light because Jesus, by his life and his death, has made us into light. That's verses 8 through 14 in our second point this morning. Maybe we need to read verse 8 again to catch exactly what Paul is saying there because it's so counterintuitive. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Christians were not doing or practicing darkness. That's clear. We were not doing or practicing darkness. That's not what he's saying. Maybe that's happening, but that's not what he's saying. Christians were darkness. And then the Lord, by faith in Jesus' self-sacrificial love, were not doing or practicing the light. That's not his intention here. That may be happening, but that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying Christians are light. Paul's appealing to who we are. Who we are now leads us to do and practice certain things. Our being energizes our doing. Now you are light in the Lord, therefore walk in the light. This is so important and so fundamental to Christianity, especially for those of us here this morning who maybe wouldn't feel comfortable calling ourselves Christian. As Brian Chappell's college story just hinted at, this is what the Christian gospel says. We obey out of God's acceptance. We don't have to obey to get acceptance. We obey out of God's acceptance. We don't obey to get God's acceptance. God gives his acceptance for us freely. All we have to do is receive it with faith. And it changes our lives. And so because Christians are no longer darkness, we don't do unfruitful works of darkness, verse 11. We don't do shameful things done in secret, verse 12. Paul intentionally leaves what those things are to our consciences. He wants us to fill in the blanks about the specific tempting things or actions there. But don't miss the other piece because Christians have woken up, arose from the dead. Christ's light shines in on us. Verse 14. So we act as if that were true. We produce the fruit of light, found in all that is good and right and true. Or in the words of William Still, that by God's grace, we learn to do the spiritual thing naturally and the natural thing spiritually. That by God's grace, we learn to do the spiritual thing naturally and the natural thing spiritually. But again, look at how Paul intentionally leaves it to our imaginations to fill in what these specific things or actions are. And so, look, Paul is not giving us detailed explanations or descriptions of what kinds of acts walking in the light entails. His emphasis, his focus, is on why we do the light, why we are the light. And here's his two reasons. First, light exposes the darkness, verses 11 and 12. Light makes something invisible visible. Light turns our shameful secrets, our well-hidden lusts, our silent self-condemnation, 
or quietly choking bitterness, light turns these shameful secrets into something known. And when it's known, it's now able to be loved. In other words, light breeds honesty. Second, light doesn't just expose darkness. It doesn't just make us more honest. Light also transforms darkness into light. Verse 14. A person's weakness, when exposed, becomes a strength. You notice that? I can look back, back at my life and say, that weakness is exactly where God showed up for me. A person who's honest about dark embarrassments or regrets becomes a safe refuge for people to come and to share their own shame, their own darkness, their own moments of regret. And I recently heard a story that kind of underlines a lot of this. It's from a fellow pastor who had been, he had a member of his congregation get addicted to drugs and go to rehab. And this pastor, Brian, different than the go to college, I'm going to college Brian, it's a different Brian. This different Brian had the privilege of being invited to come in and come to a few rehab sessions where to support his church member who was going through rehab. At one of these meetings, they began to speak at this session about the fourth step to recovery. And I didn't know this, but the fourth step to recovery is making a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Making a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And so in this discussion about what that means, another friend there to support a different man going through rehab shared about his own experiences with this fourth step of recovery. He said, looking at your life, examining and then exposing to the light your carefully hidden past with all its failures and wounds and lies, this process is when relapse happens the most for the addict. When they get honest, it's when we look most honestly at ourselves that the habit or the urge feels the darkest. But at the same time, when light feels darkest, that's exactly when darkness becomes light. You see, Brian's friend, when he got honest with himself and God, and then eventually with other people, when he told his story, his full of personal regrets and embarrassments, his phone started ringing and has never really stopped. Friends and friends of friends and other people in the church and person after person, they all call the man Brian pastored and supported when he slipped into drugs. And they call him and they say, I can feel the habit. I can feel the urge getting away from me. The darkness, it just feels like it's going darker. And do you know what Brian's friend says in that moment? Well, you've come to the right place. Jesus came for people like us. You've come into the light. Let's walk in the light together. So let me ask three quick application questions to fully connect the dots. Where does life feel darkest for you right now? Where does life feel darkest for you right now? Will you name that to someone safe? Or, and, would we get honest enough with ourselves to admit that we are not a safe person for that issue or for that person? Or, on the other hand, would we get honest enough to admit 
that we could be a safe person for that person or that issue. So we'd be honest enough to see where we are and to reach out or not reach out. Because making a fearless moral inventory of ourselves is how God exposes the dark. Then transforms our darkness into light, and that's how we begin to walk in light. But verses 15 through 17 tell us that we walk as children of the light in a world with a lot of dark days that are evil. And so God, through Paul, calls us to walk in wisdom, not in foolishness. Our third and final point this morning. Biblically, wisdom is the skill of living like God as we encounter the realities of life. I think there's a quote on this one. Wisdom is the skill of living like God as we encounter the realities of life. This means foolishness, there we go. This means foolishness is not living like God. Makes sense? Okay, so there's a, a, a moral problem to foolishness. And foolishness is not dealing with the realities of life. There's a perception problem to foolishness. And so verse 16 pushes against our perception problem. It tells us to pay attention to our lives, pay attention to our world, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Look, we live in a hyperproductive, maximally efficient 21st century America where we have to fight the urge to take this verse as encouragement to get even more obsessive about tracking and quantifying the lives that we live in. You know, well, the Bible told me to get my planner out and to do two planners instead of one and to color code my calendar. But this doesn't endorse a Fitbit addiction to knowing and setting goals for an hourly heart rate or daily steps or monthly fat-burning potential. None of those are wrong in themselves if handled wisely. Instead, verse 16 is actually trying to emphasize, it's saying this, lift up your head. Be aware that the days have a momentum to them. We are wading in a current. And so often, that current is pulling us away from love, pulling us away from the light, away from God. And this current is subtle, and I want to be clear. It's not just a person we can avoid. It's not just a political party we can change in the next election. It's not just an ignorance that we can solve with more education. This current is strong. We need the support of friends walking in the same direction with us who can hold us up and encourage us along the way. But verse 17 tells us the awareness is not enough. Foolishness is also a moral problem. It's a moral problem. And so we need to understand what the will of the Lord is. At simplest level, this just means we need, to, we need to know and understand God's words to us. But remember, God's words in the Bible don't always give us clear instructions on every detailed decision we need to make. They give us general principles that always fill in the, the blanks. And so what do we do? What is the will of the Lord? I think verse 10 of our passage is actually really helpful. It's meant to help answer that question or at least change our perspective on that question. Verse 10 says this, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Maybe, just maybe, God cares less about where we go or what we actually do. And maybe God cares more about why we go there and why we do that. To explain what I mean, I would like to end with a story. It's a personal story like the one I began with. It happened roughly 30 years after my Michael Jordan obsession. And just a few years ago, actually, it happened. It happened uh, in the winter, uh, a few months before I was diagnosed with eye cancer. I decided to go on a, a silent retreat. I don't remember asking if anyone if this was like a good idea to go on a silent retreat. I just thought it was a really cool thing to do. But I do remember thinking, man, this is what really holy and spiritual men and women do, so I better do this. <laughs> and that's what I secretly wanted to be. A very spiritual sage or mystic. A contemplative like Thomas Merton. And so I left my young family and rented a cabin in the woods, and I took a vow. I was going to be silent, saying as little as possible, listening to nothing for three very, very biblical days. Within the, fi- the first hour of arriving at my destination at the cabin, in the woods, I started to feel the pressure. I begged God to speak to me, to show up, to reward my time praying in his presence by myself in silence on the wooded edge of a very spiritual prayer center. By day two, I almost caved and called a friend, a mentor, my wife. I was tortured by images of my young children asking where daddy was. But perhaps foolishly, I endured. I kept praying growing more and more resentful of God's absence. In a moment of desperation, I fled my cabin, and I entered into the, center's, the prayer center's main lodge and walked into the library and came upon a framed prayer by none other than Thomas Merton. It's amazing. And really, I think this prayer that Thomas Merton wrote down saved my sanity. Because I never thought Thomas Merton would pray like this. And here's what he prayed. It's, it hopefully will be protected for us. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I I have the desire in all I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire to please you. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. I so appreciated this prayer's honesty and what the prayer was said about understanding the will of God not just on a silent retreat, but for all of my daily life. I believe, this is what he says, and I think it's true, that the desire to please you, God, does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all I'm doing. You see, I was asking the wrong question on that retreat. And really, I so often go through my life asking the wrong question. A question of everything and everyone. I'm always asking, what am I getting out of this? What's in it for me? When I could be asking, 
when I can ask, how do I desire to please you, God? In this place, in this job, in this relationship. Or maybe just, am I desiring to please you? Where I am. And maybe we can trust that our desire to please God pleases God. That God likes it when I show up and when I try to honor him. That the Lord, what if the Lord's will is just turning towards God and choosing God? Choosing to focus on him. And what if we believed that he could meet us and he could use us when we're desiring to please him. When you and I want to be with him, that that pleases him. The Lord God, who out of his pleasure is ever with me, whatever direction I'm pointed to or away from him. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this word, words really, uh, to you, uh, but also from you, and I pray that you would use them, and that you would separate the wheat from the chaff, but the wheat would grow in the soil of our hearts, and it would be fruitful, and it would multiply. And Lord, I pray that the harvest of our lives will be full and a blessing. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.